Terrific to be with you on this Palm Sunday. We're not doing a Palm Sunday message, but we will be rolling right into the resurrection next week and a very special time. I remember my first Easter here uh, at Harvest, and that was last year, and uh, just so enjoyed uh, the fellowship and the meals and everything opened up, and uh, I encourage you to be here. Should be fantastic next week. Uh, we'll see about this week, and I'll let you be the judge, okay? All right. You know, last week we began a series in the study of David, and uh, we looked at the story of David's selection from among the sons of Jesse to be the next king of Israel that would follow uh, King Saul. And even though it was 15 years would pass before David would actually ascend to the throne, the Bible still tracks the life of this uh, very interesting and amazing young man. And the Bible tracks his life uh, more so than just about anybody else, particularly from youth to manhood. Now, uh, you know something about Israel. You know that the Philistines were the traditional enemy of that country, and they engaged in several bloody conflicts. Uh, in our text today, which is in 1 Samuel 17, uh, we come to another gathering storm, if you please. The soldiers of these two countries are lined up on opposite hillsides, uh, with the Valley of Elah in between the two of them. And uh, they, uh, when soldiers uh, come and engage in a battle uh, like that, the casualties are just absolutely incredible. They're enormous. In this case, however, uh, the warring nations were going to settle their differences not by an all-out battle between the two armies, but by a hand-to-hand -hand conflict between the two champions, one from each of the countries. Now, historians tell us, and uh, perhaps you've experienced it in different places around the world, perhaps where you've been, but the atmosphere in those valleys there in Israel was so thin that you could actually hear conversation going on in other people's camps up to a mile away without amplification. Some of you have been to unique places like that where you can just uh, say hi to somebody that's hundreds and hundreds of yards away across the ravine, and they can answer back in a normal voice. It's amazing what takes place. So these two countries, these two warring nations were actually uh, talking to each other. They knew what was being said on the other side. Uh, let me read a few verses here, uh, beginning in verse 4. Uh, then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits, that would be 108 inches, about nine feet. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with fish scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. I have no idea what that means. He also had bronze, uh, bronze shin guards on his legs and bronze, a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His sh shield carrier also walked before him. So very impressive. 
Now, King Saul of Israel was about six feet, maybe a little more than that, uh, which would be a tall man for that particular uh, time period in history, but he looked like a midget compared to Goliath himself. Now, what we want to do is uh, look at the story under the theme of courage, and some of you came out with your own definition of courage, and that's a good thing. Let me give you the one that I've come up with. Courage is the ability to do what is right regardless of the circumstances or the expected outcome. Courage is the ability to do what is right regardless of the circumstances or expected outcome. Now, there are three major characters in this drama that we'll look at today. There's Saul, and there's Goliath, and then there's David. And Saul was uh, unique. He was burdened by all kinds of internal inconsistencies. But Saul looked within. He lacked courage in this particular occasion, and he was extremely fearful, and we knew that. Goliath, on the other hand, looked without. He was so big, so strong, so mighty that he assumed courage and was, and was arrogant, and we know that. David, however, looked up. He needed courage and was dependent, and we also know that. Uh, but since we still have a little bit of time left today, I'm going to expound on what you've just heard anyway, okay? Uh, let's look at Saul. And uh, in Saul's life, the absence of courage generated fear. Verse 8 of chapter 17. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants. So the challenge is clear. Goliath is saying, send somebody out. Send anybody out to fight me. Now, you, you get to thinking, well, who should have been the natural one to do that? Well, probably it would be King Saul. He and Jonathan were really the only ones in the entire Israeli army that seemed to have legitimate weapons. But the armies of Israel, as well as King Saul, were absolutely terrified of this giant. Now, we're told in verse 16 that Goliath did this, came out and taunted the, the Israelite people and their army uh, for morning and evening for 40 solid days. So almost six weeks Twice a day, every Israeli soldier had an opportunity to contemplate cowardice. And every day, the troops waited for Saul to do something that would stop these insults. Now, in verse 32, David stepped up, and he talked to Saul. He says, let no one lose heart on account of Goliath. And that's exactly, precisely what happened? Everybody had lost heart because of the size of this guy. And there's a little bit of a sidebar here, and it's interesting to realize, just particularly looking at male humanity, but uh, I'll, I'll pick on the men for just a moment here, but it's interesting to see how courage in one area of life 
doesn't carry over to courage in other areas of life. You know, for instance, there are men who have tremendous courage in the face of difficulty, in the face of, of danger. But sometimes they don't have anywhere near that kind of courage when it comes to relationships. Sometimes they're cowards. You know, we have a high pain threshold physically, but sometimes are fragile emotionally. You know, we're afraid to get deep with people. We never want to become vulnerable. We hate to admit that we're wrong. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary, amazing, amazing guy. He said this, if you want to know your deepest desires in life, then what you need to do is remember your biggest nightmares. He says, if your greatest nightmare is financial ruin, then your deepest desire is going to have to do with money. If your greatest nightmare is rejection, then your deepest desire is going to be approval. Now, the message of the Bible is uh, that much of our fear is going to be sourced in sin. And you see it way back in the Garden of Eden. You know, the first result of sin was fear. You remember how when God created the man and, he, and then he created the woman and brought her to the man, every day God would come into the garden and commune with the man and the woman on a regular basis. And uh, they came running to him because their hearts uh, were, were filled with blessing. Their hearts were full of, of communion. But when the man and the woman, when the woman, you know, picked the forbidden fruit and she ate and gave to the man and he ate, immediately, because of their disobedience, they were filled with fear. They saw their nakedness, and when God showed up, then they ran for the bushes and they hid. Now, one of the lies that uh, Satan will do to us and tell us is that uh, when you move away from God, you move away from fear. And there's a lot of people in our communities that believe that today. Get rid of the demanding God of the Bible, and you'll be able to live without fear. When in reality, it's just the opposite. You know, 29 years ago, uh, back in 1990, Suzanne and I were um, at a pastor's spouse conference in, uh, at Hume Lake up there in northern central California. And while we were at this little conference, the San Francisco earthquake came, and the buildings crumbled and the Bay Bridge collapsed. Some of you remember that. Some of you lived there during that particular time period. But uh, everything was thrown into turmoil. And uh, a number of pastors, actually, who were at Hume Lake during that time, they immediately left with their spouses, and they went back to be with their communities. Now, in the wake of that particular disaster, there was a talk show host who interviewed a clinical psychologist. And the host made a very insightful observation. He said this, It seemed like our ancestors handled calamity uh, back then better than we do today. They didn't fall apart. They seemed to accept disaster and loss as part of life. We don't do that today so much. Why not? And the psychologist was equally insightful, and he said this, 
he was obviously a Christian man, he said, our ancestors believed that they were a small part of a bigger universe that was controlled by God. They knew God, prayed to God, and therefore they didn't have this same sense of despair and vulnerability when tragedy happened. You live here for a while, then you die and you go to heaven. And then the psychologist said, most people today consider that this life is all we have. This is it. Uh, and we're the only ones that are running the world. And when something like this happens, we feel very helpful, helpless and very fearful. You see, our problem in many cases is that we're too inadequate for the position that we've actually taken. We were designed to walk with God, to know God, uh, to love God, to be in the presence of God. And when we go it alone in our universe, we end up being choked with fear. So that is Saul. Let's look at Goliath for a moment. Goliath uh, looked without or from without, and he assumed courage and was arrogant. Now, in the Hebrew language, narrative uh, is usually extremely Spartan. You know, I took Hebrew in seminary for a number of years, and uh, there's very little uh, narrative sections that go into any kind of a detail, and that makes this detailed description of Goliath with respect to his size and his armor, his weaponry, his defiant demeanor, uh, very, very unique in Hebrew narrative. And listen to this. You know, thematically, I should say, the point is really hard to miss. Goliath banishes fear with physical prowess, high-tech weapons. By comparison, David is very low-tech, has a wooden staff and a sling. That's it. Now, if you're given great gifts and great abilities, and some of you have, been, have and you have tremendous talent. Uh, in many ways, you can tower over most of the people that you meet. And it's very easy at that point in time to have sort of Goliath-like feelings. Now, we wouldn't admit that, so to speak, publicly in light of what happened to Goliath. But nevertheless, it's kind of the giant feeling that we sometimes have here. You know, I, uh, when I was in the ninth grade, uh, and, and that was back before the flood. But, uh, you know, I got to ninth grade, and I wanted to play basketball. And so in the, those days, and I was in a high school down in San Diego area, but you not only had a varsity team and a junior varsity team, but back then you also had a freshman team. And so I was in ninth grade, and I went out for the freshman team. And uh, I got cut. You know, and I thought that the coach was incredibly prejudicial. He wanted people that could run, dribble, and shoot, you know? And I guess I didn't cut it there. So I got cut from the basketball team, so I went out for wrestling. You know, that was the winter sports for basketball. Anybody here a wrestler? Oh. All right. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I, I ended up being pretty good in high school and pretty good in college. College was a mercenary thing. They gave me money in order to do it. But nevertheless, I was pretty good. And usually, when I walked out onto the mat to face an opponent, 
I did so with a great deal of confidence. But occasionally, I ran into an opponent, an, an opponent that was far superior to me in this whole skill of wrestling. And uh, I didn't have a lot of confidence, so I tried to visualize things like Goliath, you know, banished my fears. I saw myself as a conqueror, and it never worked. <laughs> never worked. You know, so I looked to God as my hope and my salvation and says, God, I want you to defeat this opponent through me. Amen. He never did. <laughs> uh, See, Goliath, uh, he didn't have that problem. Uh, there is no evidence that Goliath feels that he was in the slightest danger at all. Uh, but when you're out of touch with reality, like Goliath, you do become vulnerable. You know, banishing all thoughts or fears is not really a remedy. Uh, we need something that's a little stronger than our fears if we're going to be fearless. And this brings us to David. And David looked up, and he found true courage and was dependent. Now, the narrative takes a turn in verse 17. Uh, then Jesse said to David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp of your brothers. Now, David is still at home. He's not even out in anywhere near the battlefield. He's just doing chores. And uh, Jesse says, hey, your brothers are on a military campaign with King Saul. They're camped out over at the Valley of Elah. And I'm going to pack some lunches, and I want you to take them and deliver them to your brothers. And so verse 20 says, so David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper. He was out watching sheep during this whole time and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp where the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Uh, Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. And then David left his baggage in the care of a baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. Now, as he was talking to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the way of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words. And David heard them. And when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done with this man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who will be done? Who will be the one that does that? For who... Is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Now suddenly, Saul, our Goliath, emerges with his taunting challenges, and David hears it for the very first time. David, they were saying, did you hear King Saul's incentive plan? The guy who dust this giant, 
He won't have to pay taxes anymore on his house. He gets the king's daughter. And just a little bit of a heads up, in a little later study, we're going to encounter Saul's daughter, and we're going to discover why Saul was anxious to get rid of her. Because she was, she was useless. She was, you know, she was a total loser. Anyway, other than the daughter, for instance, I mean, the incentive plan was pretty good. It was, it was pretty decent. The problem is nobody wanted to go. Now, David could care less about the bounty. He wasn't interested, certainly, in no taxes and the, the king's daughter or anything like that. He wasn't interested. But uh, what was cre- incredulous in his own mind is that Goliath is allowed to bring insults to the Lord and reproach to the Lord's people. And nobody was willing to stand up, get to the plate, and stop it. In verse 26, David asks, Who is this guy that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Verse 28. Now, Eliab, remember him? He was the oldest son of Jesse, and he was the one that came in the beamer and showed up and should have been, you know, in the eyes of so many people because he was so gifted, the next king of Israel, and he was rejected. And David became the one. So now Eliab... David's older brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. And all of this thrown against David, all he was doing was bringing lunch to these guys, and they're just calling him a coward and everything like that. See, when the cowardice... Of the coward is questioned, then the anger of the coward is is fueled. And Eliab looks at David and says, who do you think you are coming in here and telling us what to do? Now, there's a a bit of a dose of irony here. Eliab, he was the eldest eldest son who was the candidate for for the kingship. And he slanders David's character when he was rejected by God in chapter 16 for precisely the same reason. See, Eliab was a coward. And David said to Saul, you know what? I took out a lion, I took out a bear, and I can take out this Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God. And Saul says, this guy is a pretty accomplished military gladiator, David. You're not equipped to really take him on. And David says, well, okay. Maybe I'm not equipped in my own strength, but I can take this guy down if I go in the power, if I go in God's power and God's might. And so Saul says, okay, David, go ahead and may the Lord be with you. But I want to make sure that you're properly armed and protected. So he gave him, David, his armor. And the armor was obviously way too big for a small guy like David from a guy over six feet like Saul. And so uh, there was just no freedom of movement. So David took off the armor, and we're told in verse 40 that he went over and took five smooth stones, and he had a sling. And after some trash-talking on Goliath's part, David takes him out with one shot to the forehead. 
And then David walks over and takes his sword and cuts his head off. And, uh, you know, where do you get that kind of courage? Uh, you, you think about it, you know, and David puts his finger on it when he addressed Goliath. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I'm going to come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. You know, we all want to be courageous. We want to live courageously. But in order to do that, we need to remember who it is that shows up in the story. You know, I like to put myself in David's shoes. You know, that's kind of the way we all probably feel. I would like to be David in this whole passage of Scripture, if you please. But I'm really not so much like David. I would be in that situation far more like King Saul. You know, and I'm not really all that courageous. At times, I can be very, very cowardly. And, uh, you know, God has uh, used me in ways, uh, even in the midst of the mistakes that I've made. And, uh, you know, I realize that if I do trust God, he will give me that kind of faith and that kind of strength to do what is right. Uh, God has sent his Savior because all of us are pretty cowardly. You know, David, uh, you know, didn't perform a strategy when it came to taking out Goliath. He didn't say, hey, listen, we can do this. Just imagine him lying down in the middle of the field itself whatsoever. Now, R. Steve Sproul made an interesting comment about this. I'll make a few uh, quotes here, but R. C. Sproul said this. David is not an example, he's a representative. He fought as a legal representative of his people. He was not just fighting for them, he was fighting as them. And he makes some good analogies here. The frightened Israelites were going to be treated as if they had done everything that David had done. If David wins, they would be treated as victors. If David loses, they would be treated as losers. Whatever happens to David is imputed to his people because of his union with them. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, you find this great hall of fame of, Hebrew, uh, of heroes. And they're heroes of the faith, and they're just enumerated there. And as you read Hebrews chapter 11, we're exhorted to remember them. Remember Enoch, remember Noah, remember Abraham, remember Sarah, remember Moses, remember David. And when the writer gets to the end, he says, as you remember these heroes, make sure you fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the archagos of our faith. And the Greek word archagos means simply champion. And the champion here is not David, it's the, the son of David, the one to whom David points. He's the ultimate David. Uh, he went into the valley and faced the ultimate nightmare. And you ask yourself a, a little bit, uh, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ is the true champion, and he didn't just save us from physical death. He saved us from eternal death. And he didn't do it at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And Tim Keller makes an excellent observation here. He says this, 
that Jesus, our champion, went into the ultimate valley and faced the ultimate nightmare. You know, and are you afraid of pain? It's nothing like what Christ went through. Are you afraid of rejection? It's nothing like what Christ went through. Are you afraid of humiliation? It's nothing like what Christ went through. You know, and of all the religions, the myriad of religions of the world today, the God of Christianity is the only one who became courageous. No other religion has a God that became a human, that became vulnerable. And you and I will be able to look at the vulnerabilities that we have and the weaknesses that we battle with just about every single day of the week and know that our Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with the huge things, the ultimate nightmare, the most difficult problem in order to bring us into his family. And one of the things that we can do is just take that kind of knowledge of what God has done for us and in the midst of our little battles, we can do what is right. In the midst of the big battles, we have the courage to do what in fact is right. And really the key to Christianity is letting the truth that we all have up here in our being to drop 18 inches to our heart and then live out that kind of truth for the glory of the Lord. And that's exactly what King David was able to do. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Our dear Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for these stories of Old Testament heroes and for the insights they gave us, they gave us to look at our own lives and in many cases uh, see the holes that are there, the things that need to be rearranged for the glory of God, and they show us how to do that. And we thank you, Father, that uh, you love them with a love that is absolutely beyond calculation, and that same love uh, that you showed through uh, your heroes uh, back in the Old Testament, you showed to us even today. Father, may we never act in such a way as that we feel unloved. Might we realize that you are the great lover of our souls and uh, the love we get from friends and family are just a, a taste of that right now. So we give you uh, constant praise for who you are and what you've done and what you're going to continue to do in our lives in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.